Can you imagine being on the scene that day? Being one of the bystanders, you're sitting there in a house, and then pretty soon, the ceiling starts to open up. And they lower a man who's paralyzed down there in front of Jesus. How, how much gumption does it take to go to someone's house and rip apart their ceiling and lower a friend down there? But here it is. Jesus is sitting there. He's teaching away, and this guy is being lowered right down at their feet. His friends brought him there, and, and, and there's, you can imagine there was a ruckus there. There was a confusion there. And I'm popping a little bit, but Chris has got me fixed. Jesus is giving a, a message, a sermon, a teaching series. And it was all interrupted by this event. But what would it be like if you were sitting there and you saw this taking place? I mean, how would you feel right now if somebody was starting to be lowered down to the skylight of the sanctuary? I mean, you'd be like, well, that's kind of amazing. That's kind of weird. That's, that's kind of gutsy. What, what's going on here? Now, I've often thought it'd be so much fun to uh, be suspended and be able to float through the sanctuary on bungee cords while preaching. But, I mean, just imagine these guys. They, they get there, and they're bringing their, their friend to Jesus, and, and they just need him to heal him. I'm not sure how he got paralyzed. I don't know if he got kicked in the head, kicked in the back. Don't know if he got into a bar fight. Not sure how it happened, but he is paralyzed, can't walk. His friends bring him to Jesus, and they get to the house, and it was full. Well, in Middle Eastern houses of those days, there'd be a walkway to go up to the roof. We, we know this because Peter would take naps on the roof. We know this from Acts chapter 10. But out in these houses, there would be like a skylight because they'd have indoor electricity. I don't know if you guys knew this back in the day. Not, no indoor electricity, no outdoor electricity either. And so what they would do is they would open up the skylight and it would let sun in and they would then be able to do their household chores without having to light candles or build fires or anything like that. And so they would cover those up so that it wouldn't rain in there, birds wouldn't fly in, they weren't using it. So on this occasion, those men go up there, and they start pulling back these palm branches, and they lure their friend. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's story about it. And it talks about Jesus stepped in the boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Talking about Capernaum. And he had just stepped in the boat a chapter earlier and he went across the lake. Now he's coming back. <clears throat> when he, some men brought, a, brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that they may, might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They praised God, who had given authority, who had given such authority to the men. 
The man on the mat would never forget what happened that day. I mean, would you? When you see the miraculous, do you ever forget what happened? Do you ever forget where you are? I mean, when we see extraordinary things, we don't forget about them. We remember exactly where we were. I can tell you exactly where I was when the Challenger blew up. I can tell you exactly what I was doing. I know exactly where I was when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. I know where I was. I can tell you exactly what it looked like. I can tell you the temperature outside. I can tell you all these things. I can tell you exactly where I was when the planes flew into the Twin Towers. See, whenever a cataclysmic cataclysmic event happens, it marks us and we remember. And I'm telling you, that guy that was paralyzed and he comes before Jesus, when Jesus healed him, but first forgave him, he's never going to forget that, ever. In fact, here's the crazy thing about the way that we are set up. He probably even remembers the smells that day. So growing up, my, my mom loved to bake and loved to make things. And so when she would have an extended period of time off work, she would bake stuff. And you could come home and you could just smell. And so there's this German delicacy called Krautburgers. And they are amazing. There's no sauerkraut in them. That's why they're amazing. Sauerkraut of the devil. But what you do is you take a head of cabbage and five pounds of hamburger and a lot of salt, a lot of salt. If you think you salted enough, you salt it more. You, you brown the hamburger, you put the cabbage in there, the cabbage gets soft, you put the salt in there and you keep stirring around, you put more salt in there, and you, you stir it around, you put more salt in there, you stir it around, and then you make, from scratch, bread. And so you roll out the bread, you, you take a couple of spoonfuls of the cabbage and hamburger mixture, my mom would put onions in it, I don't put onions in mine, because I, I feel that God doesn't want me to. And you put it on this bread, and you, you cut a circle around, and you fold it up, and, and you fold it all nice and neatly, and you set it upside down so that the seams are on the bottom of the, of the pan, never seams up, always seams down, and then you cook it. And I'd come home, and you could just smell, I'm sorry, cabbage has a very distinctive cooked smell. To this day, when I smell cooked cabbage, I get hungry for Krautburgers. I'm like, oh, you know, Terry, we should make some Krautburgers. Terry is not, not a fan of Krautburger. She's not a fan of cabbage. She's not a fan of salt. Um, the only thing that she does like that's in it is the bread and the, and the meat. But my boys have learned how amazing this is. Aren't there smells that when you smell it, it just triggers something? Four years ago, uh, the church allowed Terry and I to have a sabbatical. And, and for one week, we went to Hawaii, which, by the way, is the most amazing place on planet Earth. You're fortunate I ever came back. <laughs> Maybe you're not fortunate. <laughs> but we had a bag that we took with us to all the beaches. That bag smells like Hawaii. In fact, I was grocery shopping on, on, on Friday, and I got my groceries, and we go to Aldi, so you bag your own groceries. I picked up that bag, and I stuck my head in it, and it started smelling like, oh, this is so amazing. Lady walks by, she goes, sir, are you okay? Do I need to call somebody? Leave me alone. But an event happened in this guy's life 
that so changed him, changed everything about him, changed his story, changed his, his future, that I'm telling you, everything he remembers. He remembers the smells, the sounds, the sights. He even remembers what it was like when he first stood up and felt the dirt and the sand between his toes. You see, Jesus wants to do amazing things in our lives. And he's, he's just sitting there waiting, saying, hey, can you imagine what this is going to be like? And so when Jesus was on the cross, there were certain statements that he made. And we're going to go through those last sayings of Jesus during this, this Easter season, leading up to Easter. And one of the things that Jesus said in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. A powerful statement right there. You see, when you think about forgiveness, and you think about what that means, is it means that you've been changed. It means your story has been changed. It means everything about you has been changed. And so, Terry and I watched this great movie on Friday night, and then we, we made Jack and, and Mallory and Lance watch it with us last night. And the, the name of the movie is called The Last Champion. And there's this lead character in there who never lost a wrestling match in junior high or high school, won four state championships, went on to wrestle at the University of Iowa, went on to be an Olympian champion. Can you imagine being an Olympic champion? And then he failed his drug test. And he was stripped of his Olympic gold medal. He never went home. He never went home. His mom died. He had to go home to take care of her affairs. The first time he came back, he goes into a local restaurant to eat. It's a small town, probably the only restaurant in town. Someone sees him, walks in, and they say, I, I can't be in the same place with that man. So he gets up, pays his bill, and leaves abruptly. And everyone, I mean, the, the under, you, you can feel the tension in the room because this man had come home and everybody else didn't want him there. Except for a pastor and his daughter and his former wrestling coach. And the story of redemption, the story of forgiveness is so thick throughout this entire movie. And the pastor says at one time, when he confesses what he had done wrong, the pastor looked at him and says, you know, You've told me, but more importantly, you've told him. Because I don't know why people think this is so difficult. It's not. It's so simple. We just make it tough. So as we lean into this story, think about when you were with somebody and they were saying their last words to you. What was that like? See, four years ago, my dad's mom passed away. She was 94 years old, and, and uh, my parents called me up on, on a Monday, and I told Terry, I said, I need to go to the Bartlesville. Now, I just want you to know, just to fill you in on this, we've had four fake phone calls that she was going to die in, in the previous three years. My parents would call me up and say, hey, Grandma's in the hospital. She's not going to make it. We'd go over there, and she'd rally, and she'd be in the hospital going, hey, how's it going? I'm like, dude, you don't look like someone who's not doing well. So I'm getting over there expecting to spend some time with Grandma, and she's going to hop up the next day. She's going, I'm just kidding, guys. I'm, I'm doing okay. 
But I got over there, I called Terry, I said, hey, Terry, this is no joke. She is not doing well. I don't, I don't know if she's going to make it today. And so Terry and the boys, when Terry got off work, she picked up the boys from school. They came over, and we spent time there. My, my, uh, my uncle John was there. My aunt Hilda was there. My dad was there. That's his brother and sister. And that evening around 9 o'clock, we were getting ready to, to go home, and, and there's nothing we could do to sit around. And so we went in there just to talk with her and pray with her. And as we were leaving the room, my grandma looked at my dad, who at that time, my dad was in his 70s, still in his 70s, and she just mouthed the words to him, I love you. My dad came out, and you would have thought he was six years old. He came out, he grabbed me, he goes, she said she loved me. I'm like, oh, dad, I'm sure she does. What is it like? When you hear those last words, when you know that someone's getting ready to tell you the lie, you kind of lean and you want to know what is the important things you want to share with me? What is it you want to tell me? What is it you want to give to me? Well, the first thing that Jesus sees about this man and his friends was their faith. I mean, the faith that they had that said, we've got to get him to Jesus no matter what. We're, we're going to break down walls. We're going to rip across ceilings. No matter what, we are getting Jesus into that room. They get in there. The house is packed. And they're like, no, no, we, we, we're still going to get him in there. They start pulling across the ceiling tiles. They, they tie ropes around the, the mat. They start lowering him down. I mean, he's already paralyzed. If he slips off the mat, what worse could happen to him, Right? And it comes to the feet of Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. Matthew 9, the first part, says when, verse 2, the first part, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, looking at the faith, I don't know if you guys are huge Matrix fans. It was a movie that came out probably about 20 years ago. But The Matrix was an amazing movie. It had uh, Keanu Reeves, yes. Whoa. But he played a guy by the name of Neo. And there was another guy there named Morpheus. And, and Neo had this prophecy about him that he was going to be the promised one. And when you watch the Matrix, if you're, if you're like me, if you're a nerd like me, and you watch the Matrix, all I see is Jesus throughout the entire movie. I'm like, Terry, 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 this is a gospel story. And my wife's like, shh, shh, shh. Keanu is on the screen. But there are parts of the scenes where other people are looking at Keanu Reeves, Neo, and they, they say, no, I'm not seeing it. I don't think he's a promised one. I don't see what you see. Morpheus, don't you have doubts? And Morpheus says, my faith is stronger than my doubts. How amazing is that to know that your faith is stronger than your doubts? He, he goes on to say very calmly and very boldly, Morpheus replies, my faith doesn't require that other believe, others believe. That, that's what you guys are saying. You know, my faith isn't, doesn't rely on anybody else to believe. My faith only requires that I believe. It doesn't matter what your parents believed, what your grandparents believed. Your faith is, all comes down to this. What do you believe? Oswald Chambers said it this way. Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. 
Faith means whether I'm visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. There's some things that only can be learned by walking through the trials of life. My faith is in God. Whether he delivers me from this or he allows me to go through it, my faith is always in God and it's unshakable. Faith cannot be intellectually defined. You can't say A plus B equals C and therefore your faith is is intellectually defined. I mean, as amazing as algebra is, algebra will not define your faith. I told Terry this when I was in college. I was taking systematic theology too, which, by the way, don't take that. It's really not a fun class. And I told her one time we were walking. I said, Terry, I'm losing my faith. And she freaked out. She goes, what? You're losing your faith? I could be losing your faith. And I said, no, no, it's not like that. I said, I used to believe God because I believed God. Now I know that this person said this and this person said this. And I can tell you all these things over here. I said, I now have a reason to why I believe. And she goes, isn't that a good thing? I go, yeah, but man, I, I, I missed the days of bliss when I just didn't know what I didn't know. As much as we should labor to prove that our faith, and as much as we should dig into the presence of God, sometimes it's just so great to say, you know what, I believe. I believe. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. God always follows it up with something. God never tells us to blindly believe, and he shows us over and over again that our faith has substance. The second thing that we see is that Jesus forgave their sins. See, here's one of the big struggles that we have right now that we face, is we keep hearing people say, oh, you know, you should go out and do good things and buy your good things, Jesus will be be glorified. And I do believe that we should do good things. And I do believe as Christians, we should not be obnoxious people. But do you know how many times in the Bible when Jesus, when someone's brought to Jesus, and the first thing that Jesus did, he said, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk, go and see. Your sins are forgiven. He always met that deeper need, that that connective need of, of Jesus Christ, of being saved, of being forgiven, of being made right, being made whole. It's not about, and I'm all for it. We, we should go out and we should do great things and we should help our community out. We should be difference makers. But if we never tell people about Jesus, guess what? We have failed. Jesus is the difference maker. Not me. Nothing that I can do. Jesus Christ is a difference maker. Forgiveness is radical. It dissolves alienation. But think about that. When forgiveness takes place, it actually unites people together. When there's unforgiveness in your relationship, when there's unforgiveness in your family, guess what? It alienates you. It sets you aside. You think, man, I mean, this all by myself. But where there's forgiveness, God is glorified. Forgiveness is the most radical force in humanity. It's the the thing that changes us. Matthew 9, verse 2, the second part says, Take heart. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. 
a London psychologist one time told the doctor, Billy Graham, that 70% of his patients would be cured if they only forgave or received forgiveness. Often, people are told they have nothing to be guilty about. We tell people, hey, don't feel guilty about that. But sometimes, when we feel guilty, we know we've done something wrong, there's something inside of us that says, you know what? I'm wrong. And we have people come around and say, hey, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You shouldn't feel wrong about it. Sometimes, we just need to come out and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How much of our problems would be solved if we just did that. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people would come to them and they wanted to be healed. And what, what did Jesus do first? He told them, your sins are forgiven. Here's the big part about this. We believe that Jesus Christ not only was the Son of God, but was God himself. God in the form of flesh. And so he was 100% God, 100% human. That doesn't make him 200% of anything. That means he was fully God and fully human simultaneously. Completely amazing stuff right there. And so not only was he human, but he was God. And because he was God, guess what he could do? He could forgive sins. Only God can do that. They were so ticked off at Jesus. They're like, hey, how could he say that he, he could forgive sins? And nobody verbalized it. Nobody stood up and said, hey, hey, um, point of order, point of order. You don't have the authority to forgive sins. No, they just thought it to themselves. He's blaspheming. He's, he's sinning against God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, proving that he is God, he knew exactly what they were thinking. He said, hey, I know what you're thinking. Guess what? I can forgive. You know what else I can do? I can heal. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He looked at the man, he says, hey, I've forgiven your bigger debt of, of sin. Now I've healed you. Rise up and walk. In Matthew 9, 6, it says, but so that they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and go home. There's something so amazing about forgiveness that led to healing. Philip Yancey wrote a book several years ago called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in there, he had this story about a Spanish family where the father and the son got into a heated argument and the son left and the father says, I never want to see you again. The son goes, fine, I never want to see you again. And he ran away. Several years later, the father felt remorse. And so he put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And it said, Paco, meet me at the hotel in the center of town. All is forgiven. You know what happened? 800 Pacos showed up at that hotel. There's just something about it. I said, man, we need forgiveness. And so every, I mean, Paco's a popular name in, in Madrid, I guess. But also what's more popular, people need forgiveness. There's a story that Jesus tells of two brothers. And if you're the parent of two sons, you understand how this works. You had an older son and a younger son. The older son 
I mean, he put in the work, and he would get up early in the morning, he'd go out and do all the chores, and he got everything done. The younger son goes, you know what, I'm too good to be doing all this work, I'm going to inherit this someday, and I don't want to put in the work, I'd rather hire someone else to do it. Why are you doing all this work? I don't want to do all this work. So he went to his dad, he said, hey dad, I wish you were dead, now give me my half of the inheritance so I can run away and live life the way I should be living it, large and in charge. First of all, if I'm the father on that one, I backhand the son and say, get back to work. But the loving father says, okay, son. Brings in the account, figures out what half the assets are worth, writes him a check, hands it to him. The son runs away. Living large and in charge, he, he goes off to a foreign land and, and he makes friends easily because he has money. He's buying everything. And so his entourage grows and women come around and he is suddenly the most popular, most handsome man around because he's got money. And he's burning through the money like water. One day he goes to the jar in the back of his house where he keeps his stash of cash. He reaches his hand in there and there's nothing in there. He's bankrupt. There was an economic downturn in that country that he was in and the only place he could find work was feeding pigs. And the rancher said, I can't pay you much. In fact, all I can do is allow you to live with the pigs and eat whatever they don't eat. Have you ever been around pigs? They eat everything. He's laying there at night one night, and he is hungry, and he's starving, he's filthy, and he stinks. And he thinks to himself, you know, I bet you if I went home and begged for forgiveness, my dad would give me a job. And so he decides he's going to take that long road walk home, the walk of shame. And he's reversing his head, exactly what he's going to say to his dad. How sorry he is, how broken he is, how wounded he is. And he looks up from a far way off, and he sees his dad sitting out on the steps. And he goes, man, I just can't wait to get home. I can't wait to, to be there. I can't wait to have food in my belly. He walks a little bit closer, and his dad starts to squint. And his dad recognizes from a distance that's his son. He sees the way he walks. He sees the way he holds his shoulders. He goes, I know that's my son. And the dad gets up, and he starts running down the road. When he arrives at his son, Switch to April's mic. When he arrives to his son, his son starts in, Dad, I am so sorry. His dad just grabs him, wraps his arms around his neck, and he weeps and he cries and he goes, My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. And they go back to the house, and he hollers at the servant. He says, my son needs a new set of clothes. Go into the room and pull out the finest clothes that we have. Go grab the signet ring and put it on his finger as a sign that 
my son is home, my son has arrived, and he's still my son. And he told another servant, he said, go out to the barn, you know, the calf that we've been fattening up, that we've been getting ready for a barbecue with. He goes, go and slaughter it and prepare a feast of celebration. For my son who is dead is alive. You see, that story is about us. It's about you and it's about me. It's a story about forgiveness, about how much God loves us, how much God cares about us. He didn't leave us out there. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't turn his back on us. But he said, my child, whom everybody thought was dead, is alive. Maybe this morning, as April said, You've never asked Jesus to come in and forgive you and cleanse you from the sin. You've never asked Jesus to come in and take over and say, you know what, I want to be made right with God. This is your moment. This is your moment to simply say, I need Jesus. Not because he's some magic fix, but because he'll change your life. He'll forgive you. He'll set you up. But there's another part to this story. The older brother comes in from the field. So angry. So bitter. So mad. Doesn't even go into the house, but goes out to the barn. Have you ever been angry and you've been working, but you're making noise so that everybody else knows that you're angry? This is what he's doing. The father comes out to see him, and he goes, son, tell me what's going on. And he goes, dad, that brother of mine is no good. He's a, he, he told you he wished you were dead. He took money, he went away, and he wasted it. What are you doing? Cast him out. Father looks at him and he said, Let me tell you something. Everything I have is yours. And everything I'm going to get is going to be yours. But this brother of yours was hurting and he was wounded and he was lost. And now he's home. Come celebrate. That brother couldn't celebrate the good news. Sometimes we get so hooked up in what we're, what's going on, we become like what April said. We become backslidden where we think that our way is even better than God's way and we know everything. But God's saying, I want you to repent. I want you to come home. I want you to receive grace. Here's the story in a nutshell. Run to the Father. Run to the Father. He'll open up his arms. He'll accept you. He will forgive you. Life will be great. It doesn't matter if you're the prodigal son. It doesn't matter if you're the older brother. God loves you. He's crazy about you. He wants to see great things in store for you. And when we say that we're sorry, you know what happens? We receive forgiveness.